Good afternoon. Thank you so much for coming out and worshiping with us. Have you guys ever heard of a newspaper called The Onion? I guess it's also a website. All right. In the mid-1990s, there's this new newspaper that came out. It started in Madison, Wisconsin. It's called The Onion, and uh, it uses an exaggerated form of comedy called satire. Not a single article in the history of The Onion has ever been factual. They're all made up. They're all a joke. Some of my favorite headlines from The Onion over the years have included public relations firm advises United States to cut ties with Alabama. Ninja parade slips through town unnoticed. This one's a thinker, but it's brilliant. The CIA realizes it's been using black highlighters all these years. Or finally, winner didn't even realize he was in a pie-eating contest. <laughs> so maybe you're smiling under your masks and maybe you aren't, but uh, there's really only one thing funnier than Onion articles and headlines, and that's when people who don't understand that it's a joke newspaper actually think that these things are real. And over the years, this has happened dozens of times to some really embarrassing effects. For example, have you guys ever had somebody tell you to, to watch like a, a, a YouTube video about a hoax and they're just super convinced that you know, they've just discovered this, this hoax and it's kind of unconvincing? So The Onion was kind of parodying that effect and in 2009, they had an article about how after watching a YouTube video claiming that the moon landing was a hoax, Astronaut, an actual first man to walk on the moon, Neil Armstrong, now believes that the moon landing was a hoax. <laughs> though, though the tone and the wording and the premise were just so obviously a joke, for some reason the two major newspapers in the country of Bangladesh put on their front page that they had evidence now that the moon landing never happened. How about this? Have you guys ever noticed that uh, professional sports teams kind of get, they try to get taxpayer money to get a new stadium built without them having to pay for it? The Onion was trying to parody that, and in 2002, they had a fake article claiming that Congress was going to move out of Washington, D.C. unless taxpayers built them a new Capitol building with a retractable roof. <laughs> But in China, the Beijing Evening News believed that this story was real. They reprinted it on their front page as a gleeful example of American greed and capitalism. Like they thought it was a real story. And here's a final example. In 2011, The Onion printed an article. I, I'm not sure what they were going for, but it was a parody maybe of how desensitized we can become to dangers in the workforce. So... Uh, they wrote that in American cities, a window washer falls from a skyscraper and plummets to his death every 10 seconds. I, that's funny, I don't know why. It doesn't make sense. But last year when facing the press over two fatal construction accidents in his country, the president of Serbia used that story to explain that working conditions in his country were still much safer than window washing in America, not knowing that it wasn't a real story. So the point here is there's even dozens more examples of embarrassing mistakes that people have made over the years. 
not understanding the tone of the onion, not understanding that humor and satire and parody are being used. Anytime you misunderstand the tone of something, you run the risk of probably misunderstanding the meaning. And I use this as today's introduction because unfortunately this happens a lot in the Bible as well. It's likely that you guys have heard uh, or read the parable of the friend at midnight. And if you don't understand that Jesus is using humor, you could actually become confused or frustrated and draw wrongful conclusions about God. Uh, But today's parable is an example of Jesus masterfully using humor. I guarantee you that the original audience would have been smiling or laughing. So what I'd like to do today is to uh, establish the tone that Jesus is using. And in the process, I think that we'll learn some encouraging insights on God's care and faithfulness for us. Our outline will be as follows. Section 1, I want to explain to you guys, and maybe you've never heard this in church before, I want you to know that Jesus could be funny. Jesus was a masterful teacher, and when he wanted to, he could make you smile or laugh in a way that would reinforce his main point. In section two, I want us to just really dive into today's parable. Each uh, Sunday uh, this month, we're studying a different parable that Jesus taught, and we're trying to learn what, what we can learn about Jesus and God through that parable. And so I want us to really understand what Jesus is teaching us through the parable of the friend at midnight. And then I want to wrap up in section three with some encouragement and application that we can all leave with from this beautiful and funny story. All right. There's there's a verse in the Bible that says Jesus was a man of sorrow. And a lot of times when we see uh, pictures of Jesus, he's he's not necessarily laughing. And Jesus, of course, came to do some significant things. And and he um, he taught parables and lessons and did miracles that just ran the full emotional gamut. So Jesus wasn't a class clown, but when he wanted to, he could be really, really funny. Let me give you a couple examples. The first examples that I want to give is that Jesus could give a really great one-liner. Do you guys know what a one-liner is? Like, like you're having a conversation and somebody just sums it up so perfectly that that's how you remember the whole conversation by. For example, in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, there's these two groups that are trying to trap Jesus. And uh, it's a very political conversation. And these groups, uh, one kind of represents the political side of things and the other kind of represents the spiritual side of things. Two dangerous places to be, right? And they're trying to trap Jesus over paying Roman taxes because they're in Israel at the time. The people are Jewish, but they're occupied by the government of Rome. And so they have to pay an awful amount of taxes to Rome. And so these two opposing groups are equally trying to trap Jesus. And they say, should, you, should, should Jewish people pay taxes to the Romans? And the trap is that if Jesus says that a Jew should pay taxes to the Romans, they'll make it look like he's unsympathetic to the Jewish people, right? But if he says that Jews should not pay Roman taxes, uh, he'll look like he's part of a rebel group that's trying to lead this insurrection against Rome. And so he gives this great one-liner let. Let me set it up with this story. About two years ago, uh, one of my sons saved up some allowance money and went down to the corner store and came back with like, well, he bought $5 of candy, but he ate half of it. So he came back with like $2 worth of candy, put it in the closet, and he said to me, Dad, do you promise that you're not going to eat my candy? 
right? And so I look over at the pantry just long enough for his eyes to gaze over there too. There's like probably $200 worth of groceries that I bought in that pantry, right? Then I look over at the refrigerator just long enough for his eyes to go over there because, you know, there's probably 200 more dollars of groceries that I bought in that fridge. And my answer was, okay, buddy, I won't eat the food that you bought if you don't eat the food that I bought, <laughs> right? And he, he had to kind of laugh because he kind of understood the imbalance of the situation. And so that's what's so funny when Jesus answers that trap by saying, well... I guess the solution is to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. Because if your theology is correct, everything's God's, right? But you see how Jesus masterfully gets out of that trap with a one-liner that's actually kind of funny if you understand what it is that he's saying? There's another example in Matthew 15, 14. And again, there's these two groups, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're trying to always trap Jesus and kind of discount his teachings. And the disciples come up to Jesus afterwards and they're kind of frustrated at the way that these two groups are always disparaging the things that the insightful things that Jesus is teaching. And so the disciples ask Jesus, well, out of the out of the scribes and the Pharisees, like we know they're both wrong, but which one is more right? Which one is closer to what you're teaching us, Jesus? And Jesus gives this funny answer. He says, Well, an answer to which one of these groups is more correct. He says, I suppose if a blind person was leading a group of blind people, they'd all end up in the same ditch. Right? Might not be politically correct in 2020, but it's funny if you realize what he's saying is none of them are enlightened enough to disparage what, I, what it is that I'm teaching about the Father. How about nicknames? Sometimes we cringe because we might have a painful nickname that somebody's given us. But sometimes people can give us a really affectionate and insightful nickname as well. Jesus could give really clever, funny nicknames. There's two places in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we're told that Peter had a father named John. In two different places, Peter is called the son of John. But in Matthew 16, 17, Jesus calls Peter the son of Jonah. So we have to ask ourselves, one of two things could be happening here. Either like there's a typo in our Bible and Jesus is making a mistake, or he's intentionally calling Peter the son of Jonah as a clever nickname. And if so, what would the meaning of that be? Well, we know that Jonah spent three nights where? Inside of a whale. And wives, what do, you, what do your husbands smell like when they come back after a day of fishing on the river and pulling hooks out of the mouths of fish and cutting up trout, right? Like they kind of smell fishy. And Peter was a fisherman. So I think one of the things that Jesus is saying here is that, uh, Peter, you kind of smell like fish. Now, the other thing that we know about Jonah and Peter at this point, and there's a lot of other comparisons that will pop up later, but even just at this point in the story, Jonah has a fluctuating faith. Like he starts off running from God because he doesn't want to go obey and take God's word to the, the Ninevites. So he tries to flee all the way to the other side of the world and then he gets thrown overboard and the fish swallows him up and he gets taken up to the surface. And in Jonah 2 and 3, there's just this beautiful poem of, you know, I, I was running from you, God, but you lifted me up from the depths. Now I'm zealous and now I'm loyal again. And he gets 
uh, to Nineveh and he marches through this mighty city and he's preaching God's word and he's faithful again. But then the story ends where he's up on this hillside in the shade telling God, I don't think these people even deserve to be saved. And so if you just you know, charted it out like a, a graph up and down, Jonah's absolutely this person that has a faith that goes up and down, up and down. And what do we know about Peter just... A chapter earlier in Matthew 14, he says, Jesus, call my name so I can walk out to you on the water. And then what happens a couple steps later? He's under the water. I think when Jesus in Matthew 15 calls Peter the son of Jonah, it's an affectionate and funny nickname. One verse later, he gives Peter an even more famous nickname. And he says, Peter, Peter says, "You, you are the Messiah. You are the son of God. And Jesus says, because of this declaration, you are the what? You are the rock that I will build my church on. What's like the one most agreeable thing we can all say about a rock? A rock is consistent, right? A rock is unchanging. A rock is always the same. What is Peter's personality? First, he's pulling out his sword and cutting off that soldier's ear. Then three chapters later, he's like, I don't... Don't look at me. I don't even know Jesus, right? He is not a rock. He is not consistent. But I think that there is a tenderness and an insightfulness and a humor illustrated in how Jesus talks to those closest to him. Sometimes a nickname can be humiliating, but other times it can be encouraging. Maybe your son struck out at T-ball and you say, you'll get him next time, slugger. Maybe your daughter has like the most tiny, minuscule part in the school play and you say, great job, Beyonce, right? (laughs) Sometimes we give nicknames to encourage somebody towards what we want them to be. When Jesus tells Peter he's the son of Jonah, he wants Peter to become this famous prophet and missionary to the Gentiles. When he calls him the rock, he wants him to be a consistent, faith-filled, unchanging follower. Those are clever and humorous nicknames if you understand what he's going for. And here's a final example of how Jesus can be funny. I think we could all agree that sometimes one letter within a word can make a world of difference. And I've got an example or two up here on the stage of how one letter can make a big difference. This is a Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, billboard, and it's supposed to be advertising for a product called the Loaded Bowl. Come in and get the Loaded Bowl filled with chicken and all sorts of good things. But somebody didn't use their spell check and kind of gave maybe a preview of what could unfortunately happen. Here's another example of how one word, one letter can make a big difference, right? One letter can make a big difference. All right. Jesus understood that one letter can make a big difference. In Matthew 23, 24, there's another group that's just getting everything wrong. And they're actually making everybody weigh out the spices and some of the things that they own just so they can tax them perfectly. They think that they're following the Old Testament law so perfectly that they're even measuring it out to get the exact precise amount of how much you have to obey. And Jesus basically says, in their effort to get everything right, they couldn't be more wrong. The whole point of the Old Testament law is to be filled with justice and mercy and faith. And all they care about is just getting the exact amount measured out. He then goes on to sum it up by saying, 
It's almost like you're straining uh, out a gnat to drink a camel. And uh, what you guys need to know is that in the language that Jesus was speaking at the time, which was Aramaic, the word gnat and the word camel were only one letter apart. And in that quote, Jesus is showing his mastery of language as well as his humor. So let's move on to section two, because some of you probably just didn't believe me that Jesus could be really clever and Jesus could be really funny. I hope that you believe me, because as we understand the tone of the parable that he's telling us today, he's using humor to teach us some really valuable and insightful things about prayer and about our God, the Father. Let me just remind us, now that we're maybe in a little bit of a better mindset, of this strange parable. Luke 11, 5 to 10 says this. Jesus said, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Another friend of mine is on a journey and he's come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside says, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. And Jesus says, I tell you, even though he'll not get up and give the bread because of friendship, because of the shameless audacity, he'll surely get up and give as much as you need. So it would be easy to hear that story and kind of perk up your eyebrows and just not understand what it is that's being taught. You could even draw the wrongful conclusion that as we pray to God, he's bothered by our prayers. If you're not understanding the tone that Jesus is using, you can take some wrongful conclusions there. Let's set up a little bit about this scene that the original audience would have been super familiar with, that we might just need a little bit of historical background. So archaeologists have uncovered that uh, in Israel in those days, all the homes had one room. Uh, Homes could be big, but they all essentially had one room. Furthermore, we had a little bit of a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory situation. Do you guys remember in the 1970s, that creepy movie, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Do you remember like the whole family sleeping in the same bed? That's super creepy. That's what they did in those times. There's this one room, there's one bed. They would have slept up on the rooftops in the heat of summer, but in the cooler part of the year to stay warm, they're all in the middle of the house in the same bed. Furthermore, sometimes they've got animals in there too, to protect them from predators at night. You might have chickens or goats inside, uh, inside a little fenced area inside the house. So what you have to understand is that everybody's cozy for the night. Everybody's asleep. The animals are asleep. The kids are asleep. And all of a sudden, there's this knock on the door. It's midnight, which is actually midnight because they go to bed as it gets dark and they wake up when the sun comes up. If you're just in a one-room house, you're not going to really be able to catch up on your sleep and nap the next day, so this is sleeping time. But someone's at the door, and they're saying, Hey, I got some friends over. We're having a party next door, and I'm out of bread. Can I borrow a couple loaves of bread? And the humor of the situation is, if you're in bed and your kids are there and the goats are there and everyone's asleep, like, what do you want? You want quiet. You don't want to be disturbed. You want this guy to go away. So everyone would have somehow related to that story and understood the humor because what Jesus is really saying is, be like that obnoxious guy at the door. Because if that guy at the door is restrained and quiet, he's not going to get what he wants. 
But if he's loud and obnoxious and doesn't take no for an answer, that guy's going to spring out of bed and give him the bread because the asking or the requests are what's broken the situation over. I hope the light bulb's going off because Jesus is using a hypothetical and humorous situation to say, pray like that guy. Let your prayers break open the situation. Pray shamelessly and unashamed. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a similar situation to that, but uh, right now we're living in a three-level house, and so uh, all the bedrooms are on the upper third floor, and uh, as much as it's possible, we try to get our two-year-old to take naps. So she's up there in the afternoon taking a nap in her little bed, but unfortunately the other three boys are up there having WrestleMania 20, right? (laughs) And it gets really loud. And uh, my wife gives me this look, that I need to go up there and quiet them down before the baby gets woken up. Men, I don't know if you've ever gotten that look before, but that look is saying Yellowstone is not the only dangerous supervolcano around here. (laughs) I am about to erupt if that kid gets woken up from her nap. And then, like, I'm in a super awkward situation because there's just not time to tiptoe up the stairs and open the door and say, boys voice, please play quietly. So like you have to yell, be quiet, don't wake up your sister, but it has to be loud enough to get their attention and quiet enough to not actually wake up the little girl. And if you've ever found yourself in that situation where you're just wondering how loud to be without being too loud and how to get what you want without everything getting out of control, that is the humor that Jesus is using to teach us how we should pray. Pray like your prayers will break open this situation. Maybe you've got an adult child who's not walking with the Lord. Maybe there's some tension in your marriage that's been going on for years and it's just not getting resolved. Maybe there's some sort of career thing that you are seeking guidance for. Sometimes we want to be polite. Sometimes we don't want to bother God. Sometimes we get frustrated that we haven't gotten those answers that we seek. And so we just kind of say, all right, I guess I've already asked. And now it's just up to God to do the rest. Jesus is using the humor of this situation to say, pray like the guy at the door, knock and ask, and make sure that your prayers break open the situation. As we try to uh, interpret this parable, uh, another thing that's important to point out is that Jesus is using like a familiar, a couple relationships that everybody would be familiar with. Uh, What are the two things that he talks about in this parable if we go on to the next couple of verses? First, he's talking about a begging friend that doesn't deserve the bread because he didn't make it or he didn't save it up himself. He needs his neighbor's bread and the only way he's going to get it is through the benevolence of this other person. And then a couple of verses later, Jesus talks about it would be like a child who's asking for something from his good father. So Jesus is using... Two familiar relationships to teach us about prayer and remind us that God is the giver and we are the asker. And that seems so elementary. That seems so basic. But I'll just speak for myself and I'll say sometimes when I pray, I just think of God as like the Amazon distribution center. God, I've been waiting for this thing that I ordered. God, it's been like four days, right? You're tracking the prayer. 
And that's totally getting the relationship backwards between God, the giver of good things, the neighbor whose bread it is, the good father who gives the things to his son. And so I think another thing that's uh, so insightful that Jesus is teaching us in this humorous story is that, hey, when you pray, remember, like you're asking for something that you can't get in any other way. God is sovereign and God is the giver. You know, it is hard for us as adults to remember that lesson because we can essentially get anything that we want. But I want you to think back to like the first thing that you can remember as a kid that you really, really wanted. For me, I was about six or seven years old and there was a specific Lego set that I really wanted, but I didn't have a job and I didn't get an allowance. So there's only two ways that you're ever going to get that thing, right? Birthday or Christmas. So I actually ripped out a picture from the magazine and I had it under my pillow and I would look at it and I would just hope that somehow that would come in my future. When we pray, I think we need to be remembering what Jesus is saying here about the neighbor who's asking his neighbor, about the son who is asking their good father. Uh, Don't make the mistake that we're the ones in charge. Remember in our prayer life that that if we're interpreting this story, Jesus is giving us a subtle reminder that, that God is in charge and we can't get that order reversed. Um, And a final thing that I think we need to uh, interpret from this story is that uh, Jesus understands the tendency that we have to confuse a parable with an allegory. And what I mean by that is a parable, it's just supposed to take one funny point or one point and kind of reinforce that in our minds. But an allegory has like several layers to the example that all represent something important. And a lot of times we mistake Jesus's parables for an allegory. And if we make the mistake that this particular parable is an allegory, that's when we make the mistake that just like that guy wouldn't want to get out of bed and give the bread to his neighbor, if we're making this teaching an allegory, the the wrongful conclusion is, man, God must be so irritated when I come to him in prayer. And because I think Jesus was so wise... I think he wanted to make sure that we wouldn't come away from that story with the wrongful conclusion. So that's when he adds the part in Luke 11, 13 uh, to 15, that talks about uh, how good of a father uh, God is. It says here, uh, Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, would give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And if you, even though you're evil or imperfect, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, Jesus is kind of punctuating this parable with the reminder that You know, I was telling a funny story. I was just kind of using a situation to encourage you to pray with boldness. But don't actually think that God is bothered by your prayers because God is like a good father. And every good father that you know delights in giving good things to his children. Remember that that's what God our Father is like and that's how Jesus wraps up that story. Let's... uh, Let's wrap up here with section three and let's just end with uh, a couple encouragements that Jesus is giving us through this parable on why we should pray more persistently and we should ask and seek God more than we do. 
The first application point from today's story is that when we're praying in the way that Jesus teaches us to pray, we should have no fear and we should have no shamelessness. But what's the frustration? And the frustration is we don't always know how we should pray and we don't always know if the thing that we're praying for is what God wants for us or what he doesn't want for us. And so I think it's very important to point out that the thing that happened right before this parable was Jesus teaching his disciples the Lord's Prayer. You guys just look back a couple sentences in Luke 11, 1 to 4, as Jesus teaches uh, the crowd there the Lord's Prayer. And I think as Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer, he's, he's giving us a couple rules to pray by. Not rules because he wants everything to be legislated, but rules so we can know how to pray boldly and without, uh, uh, without giving up. For example, when Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's reminding us that prayer is establishing the right relationship between the creator and the created. Like we talked about before, when you, when you pray and when you want to pray boldly, just remember the right order. Remember that God is in charge and we are his children. Don't get that flipped. Number two, your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth it is in heaven. Jesus is telling us, Jesus is reminding us that we need to ask God to meet our needs with his wisdom and not with ours. Uh, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you guys remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he doesn't want the cup of God's wrath to be poured out on him? God, is there any other way that this situation can be resolved? But then he says, but your will, not my will be done. An important component of our prayer is that we say, God, this is what I'm asking for. God, this is what I need. But would you do it in your wisdom? Would you do it in your timing? And I acknowledge that that might look a little bit different than how I would intercede in this situation. I love this one in the Lord's Prayer when it says, give us this day our daily bread. That's just affirmation that we can go to God for our needs. We can ask God to meet our needs regardless of what those are without fear that we're bothering him, right? Because these are kind of the reminders of what we can pray for without shame and without fear that we're going to antagonize God. This is a really key one. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Now, if I was just giving a lesson on prayer, I wouldn't think to put this in. It doesn't make a lot of outward sense for me. But Jesus is the one teaching us about prayer. And he says, one of the essential components of prayer is that you pray that as God forgives you, that same forgiveness would flow through you and into the lives of other people that you need to forgive. We like to be like that bottle of wine with the cork on it, and we like God to forgive us. Then we like to stick the cork in the top and just keep that righteous activity of God. But Jesus is telling us that something that's essential in our prayer lives is to ask for help every day for that forgiveness to actually come through us and then into the lives of people that we need to forgive. And uh, then the Lord's Prayer concludes with Jesus teaching us to say, lead us out of temptation and deliver us from the evil one. And so that is a reminder that we need to pray that God would save us from unseen dangers. I think about a lot of the prayers I prayed when I was younger. God, would you make that girl my girlfriend? God, would you get me invited to that party? God, would you get me that job working with that group of people? And of course, 
sometimes, even as we pray for something, the underlying wisdom is that God, as I ask for these things, would you protect me from unseen dangers? Would you answer this differently than I anticipate you answering it if in your wisdom that keeps me safe and keeps me out of temptation and protects me from things that I don't anticipate? Okay, so that was a little bit of a backtrack, but if you are wondering if there's something that you should keep going to God for or if you should just give it up because his answer is no, I encourage you to read through the Lord's Prayer and ask yourself if it kind of lines up with those lessons that Jesus is giving us about prayer. And if this thing that you're seeking guidance for or resolution for in your life lines up with those five lessons, be like the guy at the door. Be like the, the son who's asking his good father for that good thing. Uh, pray without ceasing and pray as if the continuation of your prayers is what's going to bring God's resolution or that thing into your life. Um, another thing or two to point out here just as we wrap up. I can't see the clock. Can someone tell me the time? It's a glare. Okay. Here we as we wrap up. Uh, the second application point is that Jesus tells us that it's God's pleasure to reveal himself to those who seek and ask. Man, sometimes we go to our earthly dad one too many times. Sometimes we ask mom for something at just the wrong time. And sometimes that carries over into our spiritual perception and we think, man, do I want to run the risk of going to God one too many times? Listen to how it beautifully says this here in Luke 11, 9 to 10. Jesus says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be opened. Jesus is teaching us something essential about God's character. And he's saying, just in case you were wondering what God's attitude is like when you pray, Jesus is teaching us that God's character takes pleasure in answering our prayers and revealing himself to us and teaching who he is to those who seek him. Jesus, through telling this parable, is showing us what his character is like. The essence of Jesus is bringing people to the Father, and that's what he's doing as he teaches this parable. And in the same way, Jesus is saying the character of God the Father is to delight and take pleasure as he's active in answering your prayers and revealing who he is to you. I think that's a beautiful application point that we don't bother God because his very character and his very essence is taking pleasure in being active in our lives and answering our prayers and revealing himself to us. And let's wrap up with this. As Jesus uses the analogy of the good father in Luke 11, 11 to 13, think about the best, most personal, thoughtful gift that anybody's ever given you. Think about the best, most sentimental gift that you've ever gotten. It probably wasn't the most monetarily expensive thing that you've ever been given. The gift giver just probably perfectly demonstrated their love and affection and understanding of who you were through that gift. When Jesus is saying that God is like the good father who gives great gifts, he's saying that ultimately God answers our prayers in the way that we would choose if we knew all the information. The second best example I can give of a father who gives great gifts 
is through the Christmas story. Remember Ralphie? He just really, really wants a BB gun. You guys seen the Christmas story? And he tells his teacher and he tells his mom and he tells his brother and he does everything that he can and everybody tells him, no, that would be a bad gift. But after all the presents are finally opened, it turns out that his father, his good father, knew how much, how important that gift was to Ralphie and he gives him that BB gun and it's just kind of the most beautiful, profound part of the, the movie when he's kind of clutching that treasured present at the end of the movie because his father understood him. Nobody understood Ralphie, but his father understood what the perfect gift for him would be. And I think the most perfect example, the first best example of a good father who gives the perfect gifts comes in the actual Christmas story. Because Israel was waiting for what? Israel was waiting for a political deliverer. Israel was waiting for somebody to come and politically liberate them and be a king for like 30 years and save them from the Romans. But what did Jesus actually come to do? What was the gift that our good God the Father actually gave us that tells us in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. While the world was asking for a political king, God the good Father sent us a Savior to come and to forgive us from our sins and to render us justified and holy before God the Creator. What a good, what an example of the good Father who gives the gifts that we would ask for if we knew all the information and what we knew what we ultimately needed. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and close us with a final song. And as they do, I hope the parable of the friend at midnight has emboldened you. And I hope this affirming story from Jesus has kind of filled your heart with the reminder that if there's something that you know, guidance that you need, resolution that you seek, be like the friend at the door. Pray boldly. Don't get weary. Don't be afraid to uh, antagonize God, but know that he's a good father who, who, would get, who gives us what we would ultimately want if we knew all the information. Be bold. Let your prayer life be invigorated. 